All right, so once again, good morning. As John read so eloquently, we are in Acts chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11. Now, I get it. This is a short passage. We're going to have much longer passages when we get through uh, the first couple chapters in Acts, but um, this one's going to be short. But folks, don't let that fool you. This is incredibly important, what we're going to talk about today. So last week, if you were here with us, if you weren't, uh, last week was when Jesus gave his great commission to his disciples. That's when, and we see different accounts of the great commission, different wording in the different gospels and in the beginning of Acts. But we looked at the great commission that Jesus gave to his chosen apostles, his messengers, his witnesses. And he told them what? Run out and do this in your own strength. No, He said, go to Jerusalem and wait on the Holy Spirit. Wait for the promise from the Father. And then you will have the power, the supernatural ability to accomplish this great commission that I'm giving you. And then he did something that that seemed unexpected. When you read the texts uh, in Luke's writings in particular, he did something that really seemed unexpected, at least from the apostles' perspective. So let me pick up there and I'll reread it for us. We're going to pick up in verse 9. And again, this is after he gave the Great Commission, okay? It says, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were watching, and a cloud took him up out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, then behold, that, that kind of gives you a sense of like, ah, you know, hey, behold, something just happened. And behold, two men in white clothing, stood beside them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And and again, guys, it seems like the apostles weren't expecting Jesus to depart like he did. And they're sort of like, what do we do? So I think you've, you've probably heard this advice, and we can all understand the practicality of this advice, but have you ever had, heard someone say, or maybe you said it to someone, always expect the unexpected, right? That makes sense to us, because why? Because we live in a world where things happen that we weren't expecting. So you hear this practical wisdom in our world of expect the unexpected, because we have no way of knowing what's going to happen with each passing day. I can't guarantee you that something's not going to happen or something is going to happen later today, much less tomorrow or next week or next year. And so we have this practical wisdom of always expect the unexpected. We can make plans and preparations, and that is wise, but we cannot control the outcomes. We can make plans and preparations, but we can't control the outcomes. And and our ignorance, that means our, our lack of ability to know what the future holds, what does that produce in us? in every single person that stops for a second to think about it. It produces anxiety. We are anxious because we make these plans and we make these preparations, but we know that we can't control what happens, what the outcomes are. And the world would say, yeah, the only two things you can count on are death and taxes, right? What a bleak worldview that is, right? I don't even know that you can count on taxes, depending on where you're at. But the point is, like, that's what our world says you can count on. That's what you can anchor into. The fact that you're going to die and you're going to pay taxes until you do. And then your relatives are going to pay taxes on you after you die, right? And so this is, this is how this works. But that's a pretty hopeless worldview. Folks, as Christians, 
we don't have to live anxiously or hopelessly in this world because we know, at least in part, what the future holds. And we can anchor into those promises of God. We know the end of the story from the beginning. And that's why I love this short little passage at the beginning of the history of the church. Because we know the end of the story from the beginning and our hope for the future is centered on the return of Jesus Christ. It's not in who gets elected to what. It's not in where we live and how nice of a house it is or what our income is or whether this person does that or whether that person does this. Our hope for the future, our hope in the present is in the return of Jesus Christ to do and establish what only he can do and establish, and that is to establish his kingdom. That is to judge the world in righteousness. That is to usher in total and absolute justice that our hearts hunger for in this life, especially as we watch the news. And only he can do that. One of our core beliefs of Wayside, and we talked about this when we talked about orthodoxy as a mark of the local church. If you look at our seven statements that when you become a member of Wayside, you ascribe to, you say, yes, I, I'm, I'm going to stand on that truth. One of those seven is, is the bodily, physical return of Jesus Christ to the earth. That's one of our main core beliefs at Wayside. And it's also one of the major core beliefs of orthodox Christianity for the last 2,000 years. And that's one we don't think of a whole lot. We kind of think like, is that really that important? Yes, it's really that important. And we're going to talk about why today. This is promise, this, this idea of Jesus Christ bodily, physically returning to the earth. His feet touching terra firma. And as Zechariah tells us in Zechariah 14, 4, written hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was even born in a manger, that his feet are going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. That's one of the core beliefs, that he's going to return, that he's going to return as a judge and a king, that he's going to return to judge the world and, and usher in his, the consummation of his kingdom on the earth. It's promised over and over again in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And folks, if we lose sight of this promise of Christ's return, then we will not be able to fulfill our mission to bring the good news of the gospel even across the street, much less to the ends of the earth. If we fail to anchor into that promise of Christ's return, we're going to get swept away in fears and anxieties and hopelessness and despair. Okay? The world will overcome us. Instead of doing what he's commissioned us to do, we'll get choked out by those fears and anxieties. You remember the parable of the sower? You remember some of the seed fell into the brambles and the thorns? And what happened? It represented the anxieties and the fears that choked out the fruitfulness of that seed. And that's what will happen to us if we lose sight of this. Instead of hopefully, that is with hope, full of hope, instead of hopefully working hard for Christ, we will succumb to discouragement and despair. But today's passage makes it clear that, folks, Christ has been exalted, so Christ should be expected. Christ has been exalted This is our big idea for today. He's been exalted, so he can be and should be expected to return. And as we better understand the exaltation of our Lord in the resurrection and the ascension to heaven, then we'll be able to live for him expectantly, hopefully. So let's look at both of those aspects. We're going to break up our time into these. First, Christ has been exalted. And that's the whole point of his resurrection and ascension. 
is that, is that he has been exalted through his resurrection and ascension. Now look at verse 9 again. It says, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were watching, and a cloud took him up out of their sight. In other words, he was lifted up into heaven. He was lifted up into the presence of God. We talked about this over and over again in the, in the letter to the Hebrews. He passed through the heavens into the heavenly tabernacle, the holy of holies of God's very presence, God the Father, and was seated at his right hand. And there's two implications of Christ's exaltation that we need to think about today. And these are his physical presence in heaven. Where is Jesus physically present in heaven? And then also his spiritual presence on the earth. And we get both of these from this idea of his his exaltation, his ascension. So God the Son is physically present in heaven. He has taken human flesh, humanity, in the marriage of the deity and humanity of Christ, through his work, through his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, he has taken flesh and blood into God's presence on our behalf as humanity, into the holy, perfect presence of God. He is physically present in heaven with the Father. He has been seated, it says, in heaven at the right hand, enthroned at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And folks, his sacrificial work has been accepted. That's what we see in the resurrection, the ascension. If his sacrificial work hadn't been accepted by God, he would have never risen out of that tomb. He would have just been another dead guy who tried to do some cool stuff and got crucified in the process. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ascension into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies in the heavenly sanctuary is like God's stamp to say, I have accepted this sacrificial work. Again, this is where we were in the letter to Hebrews for months, that that work has been accepted. And that in that acceptance of his work, God the Father has given Jesus Christ authority and dominion. And Peter speaks of this in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3. Peter speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. He has all authority and dominion seated at the right hand of God the Father. Paul speaks of Jesus in 1 Timothy 3 as being taken up into glory, that famous early Christian hymn that we see in 1 Timothy, it ends with the fact that Jesus was taken up in in glory. And and clouds even. Uh, We see clouds. That means something in Scripture. The clouds that we see in today's passage that sort of uh, uh, he's brought, he's lifted up and he disappears in a cloud, okay? So clouds are associated with the glory and the presence of God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're they're a, a symbol of God's presence and God's glory. Just think about in Luke's gospel, the same guy who wrote Acts, go back to Luke's gospel to the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember this? Where he goes up and he takes three of his disciples and he he, he transfigures, he he reveals a glimpse of his glory and Moses and Elijah come down. All right, I'll, I'll pick up there. It says, while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This cloud is being associated with the glory and the presence of God. In the book of Daniel, 
which was written hundreds of years before what we're talking about here in the ministry of Christ. We read about clouds surrounding the Son of Man. Daniel 7, this famous Son of Man passage where Jesus gets his most popular name for himself, the Son of Man. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, it says, I kept looking in the night visions, Daniel writes, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This was the hope of the Hebrew people. This vision of Daniel, of the Son of Man, coming in the clouds. Folks, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus were the visible evidence of the fact that he is now exalted in glory, seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's physically present in heaven. And the Son would also be spiritually present on earth. Now, remember, this can be confusing. I think it was maybe confusing for the apostles. He had just promised in the Great Commission that he would be with his disciples continuously. Do you remember this? Matthew records this in Matthew 28. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. We normally stop there, by the way. But then it says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What? Jesus is going to be with us as we go about this great commission, even until the end of the church age? Yes. But to understand this statement, we need to understand something about the Holy Spirit. The nature of our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, three divine persons, the nature of our triune God is such that where the Spirit of God is, there also is the Father and the Son. So God the Father and God the Son are spiritually present with us and in us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And when Christ was exalted to the right hand of the Father... Remember, he kept saying, I've got, to go. I've got to go up to heaven. I've got to go up to my Father so that I can send the promised one, so I can send the, the, the other helper, the other advocate, right? He's talking about the Spirit, especially in John's Upper Room Discourse. He talks about this a lot. Remember that? He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and I'm going to send. So when Christ was exalted to the right hand of the Father, it meant what? It meant that his sacrificial work of redemption was complete. Remember in Hebrews, our great high priest sat down in the Holy of Holies, and we're all like, what? And all the Jewish people of the first century were like, what? Like, nobody sits down in the Holy of Holies. Folks, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God in the Holy of Holies because his work was done. His priestly work was done. His sacrifice had been accepted for the forgiveness of our sins, for our righteousness, to make us holy. It was accepted, that work of redemption. And his followers Now, after he had been exalted to the right hand of the Father, his followers, including us, are now given forgiveness and a cleansing of sin so that what? So that we can be indwelled by God's Holy Spirit. Right? How can God's Holy Spirit dwell in dirty, filthy people like us? It's because we've been made holy in Christ. By the blood of Christ, we are counted righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 
He has made us holy. He's given us a new nature. He has set us apart for his purposes. And his spirit has come to indwell us, to live in us. So when we make mistakes, we need to know this. Because when we make mistakes and when we fall into temptation and sin, he doesn't go, whoa, this guy's filthy again. I've got to get out of here. I'm pulling my spirit back. We see that in the Old Testament with kings in particular. But does that happen to us? No. Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, but because of that work, he sent his spirit to take up permanent residence in us, and the Holy Spirit spiritually unites us to God the Son and God the Father. So is Jesus with us even to the end of the age? You better believe it. The exaltation of Christ at his ascension means that he is physically present in heaven, but he's also spiritually present with us through the ministry, through the work of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus is exalted and has been given all authority in heaven and on the earth, then folks, listen to me. We have no reason to fear. We have no reason to become anxious. We have no reason to fear either the things of this world or the supernatural things beyond it. If that is true about Jesus Christ. If he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father, then we can, as the the letter to Hebrews admonishes us, exhorts us. We can draw near to God in his presence and we can both humbly draw near and at the same time boldly pray, understanding that he has been given all authority and that anything asked in the name of Jesus Christ according to his will will be done by the authority of Christ. That the Father will give him everything he asked for and everything that we ask for through him according to his will. Folks, we don't have any reason to fear. We don't have any reason to be anxious. If Jesus is physically present in heaven, then we are spiritually present with him through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes heaven, the very presence of God and us on the earth, and unites us so that we are truly spiritually present with God in heaven in Christ through the, through the Holy Spirit. That's part of what he does. He, he, time and distance mean nothing. The Holy Spirit brings us together so that we are spiritually present with God in Christ in heaven. And at the same time, he is spiritually present with us on the earth as we're going about doing this great commission uh, throughout to the ends of the earth as his ambassadors, as his witnesses. He is with us on our good days. He's with us on our bad days. He's with us in our joy, our joys. He's with us in our sorrows. He's with us in our trials He's with us in our triumphs. In all these things, He is with us. Because the Spirit is with us. And He's promised to be with us through the work of the Spirit. So we know all these things to be true because why? Because Jesus Christ has been exalted to the right hand of God the Father. Through His resurrection and ascension. So Christ should then be expected. We should be an expectant people, folks. If God exalted Christ according to his word, which, by the way, the Hebrew Bible lays out this expectation. Now, not everybody got it on the front end, but retrospectively now we look back through the work of Christ to the Old Testament and we see that this was a necessity. We see that the death of the Messiah, that the resurrection of the Messiah, that that the ascension of the Messiah, that the return of the Messiah, we see that these are all necessities looking back through the work of Christ in his death and resurrection. And if God exalted Christ according to his word, according to his promises, then we can trust God's word when it promises that he will return. 
Look at uh, verses 10 and 12 with me. These are our last two verses. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, then behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So these two verses encourage us, folks, to work expectantly at fulfilling Christ's great commission to us, even as we wait expectantly for his return. That's the context in which we're supposed to go about this work of the great commission, expectantly waiting for his return. So first of all, we should work expectantly as individuals, as Christian families, as the church family, as the big C church in greater Austin and beyond to the ends of the earth, We should work expectantly. Remember that Jesus had just given his disciples this great commission to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And he had given very specific instructions to go back into Jerusalem and wait. Wait for what? Wait for the promise of the Father. Wait for the the advocate, the helper that he had promised to his disciples. To wait for the Holy Spirit to empower them for this mission. So when the two angels appear, there's this subtle rebuke. It's a little bit of a rebuke in their question. What do the angels say? They say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? That's not just to be ironic or funny. Like that's, that's a little subtle rebuke in there. Of like, why are you standing looking into the sky? In other words, you have your marching orders. He's very specifically given you the instructions that you need to follow. So why are you standing looking into the sky as if he wasn't supposed to ascend? I mean, maybe they were thinking he was going to come right back down. (laughs) Like, okay, he's just going to go do something in heaven. He's going to come right back down. And they're like, you don't understand what's going on here. You have your marching orders, so, so get to work. And this actually closely parallels with the two angels. You remember where two angels also showed up in Luke's writings? You remember this? It was the women in the tomb. Remember when the women, the female disciples came to the tomb? Remember two angels showed up? And remember, uh, there's a subtle rebuke in, in, uh, in the angel's language to the women at the tomb. Remember what they ask him? They say, why do you seek the living one among the dead? Why are you coming with like myrrh and aloes and, and wrappings as though you're going to find a deceased Messiah in this tomb? And there's a subtle rebuke in that as well. So in one situation, his disciples seem to expect the already risen Lord to still be in the tomb. As though that's it. We we, we had a good run. Let's go pay our respects. In the other situation, his disciples seem to have expected the ascending Lord to have remained on the earth. And in both cases, these disciples need to be reminded, and folks, we need to be reminded of God's ultimate plan for Jesus Christ, because it ain't over. Now, his work is finished, but the plan ain't over. And we need to understand the ultimate plan for Christ. In both of the cases I mentioned, the disciples either had missing hope or they had misplaced hope. Either their hope was gone because Jesus was dead, or they had misplaced hope in what was actually going to play out in those coming days. But when we understand the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, According to God's word, what will we do? We will do the work of witnessing. How will we do that work? We will do it expectantly, believing that it's going to culminate and that he's going to return. 
And folks, we can also wait expectantly. Who loves to wait? We've gotten so far away from living in an agrarian culture. Uh, and I, I mean, I'm reading a book about cities throughout human civilization. And this weird dynamic happens when people move out of the rural agricultural areas into the cities. You lose an appreciation for waiting expectantly. For waiting for that new calf to be born and for that new calf to grow up, you know, and, and for generations of livestock to come through and for seeds to be scattered and not immediately see giant stalks of corn popping out of the ground like in the cartoons, okay? We lose a sense of, of expectant waiting. That's sort of that, that, that pregnant pause, if you will, of like, I know this is going to happen in the fullness of time. And we, we get into this sort of instant mentality of everything's got to happen right away. And so we can wait expectantly. And this is why the angels clear up any doubts about what can be expected. Remember what they say? They say, this Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come. How's he going to come back? In the same way as you've watched him go into heaven, he's going to come back. And we see this same promise throughout Scripture, both in the Old and in the New Testament again. And just consider some of these references to the return of Christ that use that cloud language that we've been looking at uh, from Daniel 7. So in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 14, it says, And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That was a shocker to the folks he was talking to. Luke 21, 27. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Those unbelieving folks that... that, that, that caused the crucifixion, if, if I can say it like that. The, the people that denied him, the unbelieving people that pierced him. Even those who pierced him will, and all the tribes of the earth, it says, will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Jesus will return. Jesus will return. We cannot lose sight of that. And, and let's be as clear as the angels were in today's passage. Right? I'm going to use Scripture's own words here to be as clear as I possibly can. He will come in the same way as the apostles watched him go up into heaven from the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. All right? In fact, folks, I mentioned this earlier, but the prophet Zechariah, writing hundreds of years before this account, in, in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, Zechariah prophesies about the day of the Lord. He says that at his return, he would once again stand upon the Mount of Olives, the very place where Jesus' feet last touched the earth. And when he does, it will split the thing in half in the day of the Lord. And, And his return won't be in some sort of invisible, mystical sense. Really, over the last 250 years, we've been getting more and more of this... um, sort of like eschatological heresy. It's like, how can we get away from this all actually happening? Let's, let's, okay, let's make it all mystical and, and spiritual and ethereal and, and get away from Jesus actually physically bodily returning to the earth, which has been a part of Christian orthodoxy for 2,000 years and an expectation of even the Old Testament itself. 
And so how do people get around it? They make it uh, this invisible, mystical sense. Um, a lot of the date setters in the 19th century did this, the, what led to the Jehovah's Witnesses, all these date sets of when he was going to return. Oh, it was actually a spiritual return. It wasn't a physical return. And just people just get this all wrong. Like, let's just look at the plain facts of the matter that God's promising here. It's that he's going to return physically and bodily. And I love one of my professors uh, at seminary. He used to say it like this. He teaches a class. Actually, the class is available, part of it, on the return of Christ. It just came out this week, and it's free online. You can take, uh, it's on the return of, of, of the Lord. It's Dallas Theological Seminary. I'll send out a link. In fact, I did. The link is in the Wayside Weekly. Look it up. It's free. But in it, he actually talks about this. He says, when Jesus Christ returns, you're going to be able to take a picture of it. And like, look at the picture and go, that's Jesus returning. Okay, so we're not, we're not talking about any sort of mystical, invisible stuff here. Okay, we're talking about you can take a picture of what's going to happen. Christ is exalted so we can work and wait expectantly, okay? Uh, one of our family friends passed away last year. Um, one of our dear friends uh, who was really involved in politics in the state of Texas, he passed away. And um, I had the privilege of speaking and praying at his memorial service that I went to. Uh, with dad and for most of his life he had been a political operative in the state of texas and he had been deeply involved in texas state politics campaigns and elections for as long as i'd known him and much longer than that but he was always thinking of the work yet to be done i mean he just was one of those guys he's just always looking to the horizon to think what needs to be done next okay and so uh so every time like a meeting would end with him or a party or political event would come to a close he would always leave by saying uh, you remember what he would say? He'd go, all right, let's get to work. And then he would go. <laughs> it could be 11 o'clock at night. He'd, all right, let's get to work. And he'd leave, you know. And he would get to work, you know. And he never stopped that, that mentality of like, there's work yet to be done. And so it was always kind of, um, I don't know. I just, I, I think that's what Jesus was telling his apostles through those, through those two angelic messengers. Like, I think he's saying, all right, let's get to work. You know, but not in your own strength. Okay, first... They would have to wait, both immediately and in the long term. They would have to wait. First, they would have to go into Jerusalem to wait expectantly for the promised Holy Spirit. And then in the power of the Holy Spirit, they would work at witnessing for Christ as they expectantly, as we expectantly wait for his return. So his exaltation guaranteed that he will one day return with power and great glory, just as we read in these passages, to reward our work, which was accomplished through the power of his Holy Spirit and in the hope of his return. Do you know he's not just going to come back as a judge of those who rejected their creator? Yes, there will be a judgment of all mankind. And Jesus Christ has been given that role as both judge and king. But do you know he's going to first judge us, his people? Not for whether we're going to be eternally condemned or not. If we've trusted in Jesus Christ... Therefore, there is now no condemnation. John Rue's favorite verse in the Bible, uh, Romans 8, 1. Now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So is he going to judge us to say, "Mm, I don't know, you didn't work hard enough. You're going to be eternally separated from God. No, 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 no. Kids, no. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you're not going to face eternal condemnation. However, he is going to judge us. It's referred to as the Bema Seat Judgment of believers. Like, how have you stewarded what I've given to you in this life on this earth, according to this great commission that I've given you. I'll be accountable as we've talked about as a pastor. How
How did I steward that pastoral role at Wayside Community Church? All of us are going to be held accountable. And I don't say that to like freak you out and go, oh my gosh, I haven't done enough. Quick, get to work. But let's get to work. Let's get to work in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the hope of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's get to work. Um, the author of Hebrews exhorts us to work hard as we wait expectantly. You remember this verse? It's one of the most famous verses in the letter to the Hebrews. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race, the marathon that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Folks, notice that our eyes aren't to be fixed on the race. Just like Peter walking on the water. Our eyes aren't supposed to be on the dark water, the stormy waves, the, 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 the howling wind. Our eyes are to be fixated on the person of Jesus Christ. And notice that the eyes of Christ, they weren't fixed on the cross and the betrayal of Judas and the denial by Peter and the excruciating pain that he went through in his suffering and crucifixion and death. His eyes weren't even on the burial Where were his eyes fixed in all of that? For the joy set before him. Folks, the joy was not his suffering and death. His eyes were fixed on on the joy of accomplishing his redemptive mission to redeem humanity, to redeem God's people, and after having done so, to once again sit, be seated at the right hand of God the Father, exalted in glory, and to be given all authority and dominion in heaven and on earth. And folks, he's calling us to do likewise. He's calling us right where we are in our lives to do likewise. Jesus wants us to see every aspect of our lives. Not a single area of your life is left out of what I'm about to say. He wants us to see every aspect of our lives as though it were in the foreground against a backdrop of his eventual inevitable return. It's as if while we're seeing what we're doing and seeing what's happening in the world around us, in the distance we can see him coming down out of the heavens in his inevitable eventual return. That's how we're to live our lives. He wants us to see our relational conflicts and we all have them. He wants us to see our relational conflicts in light of his return when that other person will either be standing alongside us, perfected in glory, or not. He wants us to see our marriages in light of His return when He will personally commend us for staying faithful to our vows. He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. I know that wasn't easy. He wants us to see our parenting, if you've got kids, in light of his return when he will personally commend us for our patience and our, and our persistence and our perseverance according to the Holy Spirit in discipling our children for their good and for his glory regardless of what they do with their volitional will, their volitional capacity. He will personally commend us and he wants to, to, to do that in light of, of his return. He wants us to see our commitment to a local church. We've been talking a lot about this this fall. 
but he wants us to see our commitment to a local body of believers in light of his return when we will together experience the glory of what we are imperfectly picturing to the world today in our local churches. We are imperfectly picturing the glory that we will have as the body of Christ, as the bride, when he returns. And he wants us to see the way we do church in light of that. He wants us to see our finances and our physical health in light of his return when money will no longer matter and when sickness and suffering will have ceased forever, just like Kevin read earlier in that account from Revelation. And by God's grace, with the enabling power of his Holy Spirit, we will see our lives in this respect. So today, we must look at our earthly existence in light of Christ's return. He is exalted, so we know that he can be expected. We have assurance that our expectation is not without hope. And when the day of his return comes, from that moment on, we will look back on our earthly lives from the vantage point of eternal glory. And folks, I can promise you, it will all have been worth it. It will all have been worth it. All the exhausting work, just because we depend on the power of the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean there won't be exhausting trials and tribulations and suffering and and all this. But all the exhausting work and all the expectant waiting, we will look back and say it was worth it when that day comes. Next week, we're going to go back to Jerusalem and wait patiently with the apostles as they pray and prepare for what God has promised, the coming of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at that next week. Will you guys please bow with me?